Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about one of the most unfortunate portmanteaus in existence. Restaurants. <laughs> it's not where you go to eat breasts, although I'm sure chicken breasts is available on many restaurant menus. But it is where people visually dine on female breasts. It sounds so predatory. It kind of is, Caroline. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, the official industry term for what we're talking about today is the attentive service sector. Which is code for (laughs) young, conventionally attractive women in limited clothing who serve you food. And the you is statistically 70 plus percent men. Yeah. Oh, for sure. So before we get into this, Caroline, I I feel like I should confess that I have never eaten at Hooters, nor have I eaten at any of the other... Atlanta area attentive service sector establishments such as Tilted Kilt and most recently Twin Peaks, which unfortunately (laughs) is not a David Lynch themed restaurant. I absolutely thought it was when I saw it being um, when I saw Twin Peaks being built. I absolutely thought like, oh, my God. And it's in like kind of a bougie, upscale neighborhood, I thought, like, oh, my God, they're getting, like, a David Lynch restaurant? Like, what is that going to be like? How cool. How cool. And and then I, I someone informed me of, of what it was. My yeah. boyfriend had the exact same thought of, like, oh, that's kind of cool. I mean, can you imagine you go in for some pie and coffee? It's great. Yeah. But, no, the Twin Peaks are uh, symbolic of breasts. Symbolic of breasts. Um, also, the women wear like comically small, like lumber Jill outfits, like little plaid tops and Crop tops. and little tiny khaki shorts with UGG boots. Now, Caroline, you've been to Hooters, right? <laughs> Caroline loves Hooters. <laughs> Save the letters. Um, I went once in high school. On our, like, we had senior lunch. Did you go for the wings? We did go for the wings, but we went for, like, the, this'll be weird, because uh, the people that I went with, it was a group of, like, like artsy kids, mm-hmm. and, like, there were no jocks or, like, bros with us at all. We were just like, this is, this'll be strange. The you, ironic Hooters trip. The ironic Hooters trip. Yeah, you want to, do, do you want to go get wings? And I don't remember the food being very good, and I remember... Our uh, our waitress being very not happy about seeing like a bunch of seventeen and eighteen year olds sitting at a table. Oh, I'm sure if you are a Hooters girl, and I'm, I say that because that is the industry term for them. They're Hooters girls, trademark. Yeah, capital. I mean, if I were a Hooters girl, I would not want to deal with the group of ironic uh, customers. I have to say, we were very polite. Oh, I hope so. We were not rude, but and, and were the wings good? I don't rem- remember. It was a long time ago, Kristen. I'm I'm almost 30. Caroline, your chicken wing memories <laughs> must be preserved. Um, now I'm I'm curious though how many international listeners are hearing us talk about Hooters and have no idea they're, what we're talking about. They're international. They are international, but I wonder how how like if Hooters is such an pop culturally like immediate thing as it is in the United States, because you say Hooters, mm-hmm. 
everyone knows what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't know what Hooters was when I was a very small child. And my dad, it was like dad was taking me and a friend out and we were going to go like do touristy things around Atlanta and uh, go to lunch and all this stuff. And so we were in underground Atlanta, which I won't bother to explain. It's kind of like a shopping tourist district downtown. If you live in Atlanta, you know what I mean? But uh, there's a, a Hooters. It's like the big downtown Atlanta Hooters in underground Atlanta. And being like seven, I was like, Daddy, there's a restaurant. There's an owl. Because he was clearly like trying to figure out where we were going to eat. And I was being helpful, small Caroline, and being like, there's a restaurant. And he's like, no, we are not going there. Why not? It's got an owl. It looks so great. I'm hungry. Well, and for those of you who are not familiar with this Hooters thing, so... Hooters is a mostly like wing place. Their mm-hmm. signature dish is their chicken wings, and it is served by Hooters girls who wear orange hot pants and tank tops and or crop tops. Don't forget the shiny pantyhose. Yes, they wear those shiny iridescent uh, pantyhose and these very tight white tank tops that say Hooters across their boobs and where your areola would be, you have giant oversized owl eyes because their mascot is a hoot owl. Hoot. Hooting at your, uh, your hooters. Which also, side note, I think hooters is maybe the worst nickname for breasts. No, no. I strongly disagree with oh. you. I think uh, jugs or knockers would be worse. And those are also names that have been incorporated into restaurants. Yeah, we, we can't get ahead of ourselves <laughs> with jugs and knockers. Um, and, and we're talking about this whole restaurant industry today, A, because we talked about the history of waitressing in our last podcast, and we had to talk about restaurants and the attentive service sector, because these aren't just, you know, kind of one-off novelty restaurants. This is huge business. Oh, huge. Absolutely huge. Um, and you can tell just how huge it is by how many business publication articles there are about it lately. Yeah, because, I mean, throughout the recession, this restaurant sector was the one that you saw growing while mm-hmm. everyone else was languishing. And what's been interesting to see is how Hooters, which is the original restaurant, at least in the United States, is now considered quite family friendly compared to places like Twin Peaks that we'll talk about in a minute. But before we get into the origin of Hooters and the charming men who opened it, should we give a little bit of bloomer history, like the original restaurants, which I guess were more like ankle strants? Yes, I am very excited about this. Um, I I love like thinking about how titillating women's ankles once were. I think it's hysterical. So uh, there was this short-lived, super sexy trend in the 1890s. Tell me more. It flamed out, Kristen. Like it was here and it was gone. People had too much of ankles. They were like. They were ankle starved, and then they were like, I have had too much ankle. Ankle stuffed. I'm ankle stuffed. But so eating out in restaurants wasn't really a thing in this country, like we said in our last episode, until about the mid-19th century. And restaurants and waitresses weren't common until sort of the turn of the 20th century. So toward the end of the 19th century, some restaurants catering to men, uh, offering a sensual experience, so to speak, hired 
quote unquote waiter girls decked out in bloomers. Scandalous. And so a lot of these uh, restaurant owners and employ- employers claimed that it's just practical. You know, we're in the reform dress era. Bloomers and reform dress had started becoming a thing in like the 1850s. People are biking. People are biking away from their homes to go work in restaurants. And, uh, but, as the decades pass, bloomers come up a little bit higher so that there's even more calf and ankle. And so they're putting these scantily dressed, so to speak, just bear with me, uh, women in these restaurants for the benefit of the male gaze. Yeah. So guys would come eat at these restaurants and ogle women's exposed calves and ankles, these bifurcated garments, <laughs> because I guess they would not be wearing Oh, demure skirts over them. It was just bloomers. Oh, Lord. Good grief. So in 1895, the first to do so was Bloomer's Cafe, which I do think is the original Hooters, Caroline. <laughs> Bloomer's Cafe in San Francisco, followed by St. Louis, New York, Oakland, and Chicago. In Chicago, though, the authorities closed Bloomer's Cafe, citing Morality. Yeah, as we discussed in our last episode about waitresses, Chicago was a huge site of both uh, booming metropolis, women coming in from rural areas to get jobs in the big city and be independent and earn a living wage, um, and also the site of a lot of progressive era reforms that happened were happening in cities across the country at that time, uh, from people being like, ah, oh, people aren't getting enough fresh air, and women are working outside the home. It's terrifying. Uh, what do we do? We have to save them from themselves. And so, yeah, it's not surprising that these the uh, the Bloomer-centric restaurant in Chicago would have been closed for morality reasons. Bloomer's Cafe. But just imagine if those same people who shut down Bloomer's Cafe walked (laughs) in to Twin Peaks today and they were greeted by one of their quote-unquote lumberjills (laughs) wearing a crop top. I mean, like, by crop top, I mean it comes up right below where your boobs end, hugs you under boob, (laughs) tiny uh, khaki shorts and then UGG style boots. Um, they would be scandalized. I mean, imagine all the calf. All the calf is on display. Oh my god! And the midsection. Although no ankle, you can't see the ankle. You can't. So maybe they'd be a little more comfortable at Twin Peaks. <laughs> Who knows? Um, <laughs> Twin Peaks also has been in the news this past year in 2015 when we're talking about it. Uh, there was that Waco, Texas shooting in May at a Twin Peaks. It got people talking a lot about Twin Peaks um, and also saying, oh, by the way, this was the fastest growing restaurant chain in the United States in 2013. Yes, restaurants are boobing. I mean, booming. <laughs> oh, Conger. Well, so well, what does it say? What does it mean that like such a uh, a retrograde to the point of 1895 business model is thriving? Well, all of these all of these chains and restaurants have in common comfort food, a lot of beer, sports TV. I'm on board so far. <laughs> I like a slider and a beer as much as the next person, and sexy customer service because you can go to Chili's. If you want, you know, a burger and beer and to watch the game. But yeah. you, you can only get your lumber jills at certain places. Yeah. And I mean, it makes sense, though, in light of our last episode, because you've got men shelling out all this money in places where women have to cater to them in a day and age 
when women are achieving more and more success, more and more inroads into professional life and industry. Um, and on top of that, they're wearing basically bathing suits. Yeah. I mean, and it's a very gendered dynamic. So around 75% of restaurant customers are men mm-hmm. and 72% of servers are women. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you can see what's going on here. Um, and it's also worthwhile to consider how Hooters girls and others are stereotyped. I mean, it's not just a thing of, oh, these, these guys are, you know, paying to see young women on display and serve them food. It's also looking down culturally on young women who choose to have these jobs and might even enjoy working at these jobs and make a lot of money at these jobs. Yeah, get lots of tips, work mm-hmm. their way through school, that kind of thing. And one phrase that comes up in a lot of these industry articles about restaurants, Caroline, is man caves. Mm-hmm. The whole concept is taking the man cave, which we dedicated an entire podcast to, and commodifying it, putting it out in public. If you get a little lonely in your man cave, come on over to Twin Peaks. Come on over to Tilted Kilt. Come on over to Bone Daddy's House of Smoke. Yeah, I had to Google Bone Daddy's House of Smoke and Brick House Tavern because I'd never heard of them because they're really Texas-based, which is interesting because also, side note, like these types of restaurants are most successful in Texas. Yeah. Um, they make their most m- most money there. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting to me that Brickhouse Tavern specifically on their website, you would never know. You would never know that their gimmick is uh, scantily clad, busty women. Um, it's just you literally you go to the website and it's like a burger and it, it, it shot in a very food porny way, like dripping with cheese and stuff. And you scroll down. and I'm like, OK, where is it going to tell me about all the hot waitresses or whatever, um, which is maybe the first time and the last time I will ever say that. But no, it's purely focused on just food and beer. And so I wonder if their whole strategy is like, no, we're not like Hooters. Yeah. So we have really attractive waitresses who make you feel good about your masculinity. But also this burger will make you feel even better. And it's safe for work. You yeah. want to you want to Google that? Be like, oh, they're going they're going to brick. What is it? Brick house? Brick house tavern. Yeah. Google it. Oh, it's fine. It's just cheeseburgers. Yeah. So how did all of this get started? What What's the Hooters backstory? How did that little place start? The like? Hooters origin story is just a couple of friends who were up to no good <laughs> started making trouble in Clearwater, Florida. So April 1st, 1983, six friends had scraped together about $140,000 to open the first Hooters in Clearwater, Florida. And uh, Ed Drost, who's the co-founder, who would later go on, by the way, to marry a Hooters girl, uh, described the, the group of friends as six clueless knuckleheads who called ourselves the Hooters Six. He said, we wanted to open a neighborhood joint with a beach theme that we couldn't get kicked out of, presumably because if you're just being gross and ogling waitresses and whatever at another restaurant, which does happen. It's not like that doesn't happen. If you're too rowdy and gross, you might get kicked out. But not at Hooters. But not at Hooters. Come on over. And the whole story that you see over and over again in, in most of the business pieces on the rise and success of the Hooters franchise is how these guys had no idea what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, they really just kind of wanted 
a man cave, essentially. Um, they opened on April Fool's, which uh, is apparently a hilarious mistake to make. They really didn't know how to cook anything. They didn't know how to advertise. Um, but <laughs> they were able to push on through using these kinds of grassroots, which I feel like is too dignified a term, grassroots advertising techniques to get people in the door. And it was really getting the first Hooters girl, Lynn Austin, to be their spokesperson, spokesboobs, essentially. Um, and in 1986, Lynn Austin is named Playboy's Miss July. And this is Hooters's first ever national exposure. And with that, thanks to Playboy, thanks to Lynn Austin, business soared. Yeah, and it's been soaring ever since. They're almost a $1 billion a year business with their international restaurants selling more than 30 million pounds of chicken wings per year. They also, in case you're worried about them limiting themselves, they also have a golf tour, racing car circuits. They had an airline for a minute. Uh, a magazine. Which does exist. I went to the magazine's Facebook page. It's what you'd, you'd expect. Is it just like Playboy? Or no, no. It's, it's, is it more, it's more of a newsletter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, uh, they, so there was the Hooters calendar, which I think still yeah. exists. And it's just sort of a magazine form of the Hooters calendar where it's no, there's no nudity. It's just, uh, attractive women and Hooters outfits and then, some information about something. <laughs> Info- I, I, that's so perfect. Cle- uh, clearly, I'm a subscriber. Yeah, they, well, they even have their own uh, Vegas casino hotel, and they've been super successful um, in opening a location in an Atlantic City casino. They don't offer any comps for gamblers or anything like like that, but they have found a lot of success. Yeah, I mean, there are more than 400 restaurants, Hooters restaurants, in 27 countries around the world, which is rather astonishing. I mean, more recently, business has shrunk um, from 2012 to 2014. It closed 7% of its restaurants, but the industry at large is still thriving. I mean, and some people think that the reason why uh, the restaurants have closed isn't because people are uncomfortable with this retrograde business model, but rather because the business has just de- out-diversified well, itself. out-diversified, but Randy DeWitt, who's the um, Twin Peaks founder, would argue that it's just not racy enough. Hooter, right. Hooters is, that. that is to say, that there, there are families, Kristen. Yeah. Families are going to Hooters. That is not a man cave. That is not racy. That doesn't make a man feel good about himself to spend time with his family. Oh, whoops. So Randy DeWitt, Founded Twin Peaks, like we mentioned, it's now one of the fastest growing restaurant chains in the United States. Not David Lynch themed, unfortunately. <laughs> it's all Mountain Lodge with lumber jills as your servers. And listen, speaking to Entrepreneur Magazine, DeWitt really didn't pull any punches about their premise. He said, quote, what more could a guy ask for? Great food, sports, beer, and a cute girl to look at. We don't go real deep. Yeah, which, although the training kind of does go real deep. I mean, th- these these women are oh, yeah. are groomed 
to be appropriate lumberjills. Yeah, they practice touchology, Kristen, which I was like, whoa, what is that? Touchology? That sounds illegal. Is that acupuncture? Uh, well, that would be nice. Um, but no, it's, it's, it's just touching the table a lot. I assumed it would be like the waitress has to like massage the customer. Uh, but no, it's just to like lean in and touch the table and know that like, hey, we're buds. And I'm not like, I'm not like those, those mean waitresses who just bring the food and leave. Well, and you might also get a little shoulder touch or an arm touch, mm. depending on the level of touchology happening. And servers are instructed on how to speak with and interact with the guests. Yeah, you've got to make a connection. Um, DeWitt said that sometimes waitresses are providing the best part of a guest's day. Now this, though, Caroline, is where I am on board. One of their signature features at Twin Peaks is that they serve really, really, really cold beer. All their beer has to come out at like 29 degrees. And I don't know why I'm trying to like give like bonus points to Twin Peaks or anything, <laughs> but they do have that. But those beers come in either girl sizes, that's a quote, 10 ounce, or man size. Which who knows how many ounces. Pony, I can't, I can't pony count. Pony keg. I can't count higher than 10. Um, but yeah, they had a branding document that was leaked by a Twin Peaks employee. Um, and of course, DeWitt and other higher ups at Twin Peaks were like, this was not official. We never released this. But the leaking employee said, no, this was sent to a lot of people. But so it describes Twin Peaks patron identity as I believe in freedom, bacon, working hard and playing harder. So like Ron Swanson or, or dude roommate. But Ron, Ron Swanson or dude roommate certainly would not go to Twin Peaks on a lunch break. Do you think? I'm just blinking blankly at you about dude roommate anyway. Um, <laughs> other stuff in that branding doc uh, assumes that their patron uh, likes attention from beautiful girls and being recognized in front of the guys. I got game. I deserve to drink a cold beer and catch the game without being asked what I'm thinking. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. For that. <laughs> sometimes sometimes you do just want to go somewhere and not be asked how you feel. But see, this is where I am not the customer, like a prime Twin Peaks customer, not no. only because I am a woman, but also because that kind of touchology and intense server uh, customer interaction does not relax me whatsoever. The no. kind of, the kind of, uh, you know, an office space where does he work? He works at like a, uh, or Jennifer Aniston's character works at a TGI Fridays esque place where it's mm-hmm. like, Hey, my name's so and so. I'm going to be taking care of you tonight. Leans down, you know, kneels down on the floor, yeah. elbows on the table. And I'm just like, I, I, I don't know. Well, I'll have the poppers and some <laughs> quiet. Why are you so intense right yeah. now? No one's this happy. Um, but the question is, why is this so successful? I mean, this particular model, because like you said, Hooters is pulling in nearly $1 billion annually. We have new chains like this popping up, especially in Texas. Even still, what is it about this man cave vibe that is bringing in so much bank? Well, part of it for some of these restaurants is that it's more family friendly than going to the strip club. It's more maybe socially acceptable than going to the strip club. Um, you get to go and get waited on by a young woman who's paid to be attentive to you and really not be afraid that, well, necessarily, I don't know, it depends, I guess, but not be afraid that it's going to cause a big fight with the wife uh, if you had gone, for instance, to a strip club and had a steak there instead. Well, because... 
consider where a lot of these restaurants are located. They're in suburbia, where A, you're probably not going to find a strip club to begin with, and B, you have those kind of hometown American values. We don't go to strip clubs. Get those out of my neighborhood. But instead, you can go to Twin Peaks, and Mm -hmm. it's fine, you know, because these are just wholesome American women who are earning a wage to get through college, which I'm not being sarcastic when I say that. There are a lot of women who are putting themselves through college via restaurants, but... It's just that it's it's fascinating to think about how they are. I think about what they provide, the commodity that's really there, because it's these women's bodies that are for sale. I mean, um, Ron Lynch, who's the CEO of the Arizona based Tilted Kilt uh, restaurant chain, says we make no bones about it. That's what brings people in. We sell on sex appeal, but we are sexy, classy. Sexy smart or sexy cute, not sexy stupid or sexy trashy. And that sounds to me like a family friendly strip club of sorts. Well, yeah. And he goes on to say that Tilted Kilt is classier than Hooters, which he refers to as blue collar. And there's also a lot of talk around these types of restaurants of how do we attract women and pay attention to women, even though, like, of course, our core uh, demographic is, is men, but we also need to be able to make women feel comfortable, especially if they're the ones making the decision about where, where to go out to eat. So yeah, like we said, waitresses are instructed to make a connection with the customers, but if a family comes in or a group of a mixed, uh, group of people, they're instructed at Tilted Kilt to make a connection with the woman first. And, uh, Darren Tristano, who's the executive vice, vice president of Technomic, which is a food industry consulting firm in Chicago, said that these restaurants have to target women if they want to be successful because women already make up a third of, in, on average, a third of the customer base of these restaurants. And Tristano, side note, does claim to have coined the term restaurant. I mean, he, his name does pop up in any kind of industry-ish article you read about this. Um, So there's a lot going on. I mean, there are a lot of layers to this. Um, And we've talked a lot about the perception of that customer, server, lumberjill, Hooters girl dynamic. But what is it really like for women who are working at these establishments? Because I think the knee-jerk assumption is that, oh, it's horrible, or they're selling themselves, they're airheads, however you want to put it. I don't think that we tend to socially think highly of women who are doing these jobs. So in the first half of the podcast, I think we outlined our uh, disdain for (laughs) restaurants. Or is it disdain? It's, It's really more... It's really more of an eye roll. And I use that term specifically because we did get a letter in the wake of our Man Cave episode from a a gentleman who said that he needed to stop listening to us because he felt that we were heavily eye-rolling about Man Caves the whole whole time. And and we were. We were rolling our eyes at Man Caves. And not that they exist. Like, everybody needs a space, a room of one's own. Uh, But just the fact that they are reasons and methods of reasons for and methods of avoiding your family, avoiding uh, household labor, things like that. The fact that they are so stereotypically, uh, you know, like the sexy naked calendar on the wall, the video games, the kegerator, like. And, and so it's not so much that we have disdain for man caves or for restaurants. It's it's more just that we roll our eyes at at 
hyper uh, heavily gendered spaces like this. Well, and obviously as a feminist, I'm not going to really enjoy hearing men like Twin Peaks founder Ron DeWitt refer to his employees as, quote, weapons of mass distraction. I mean, the, the job is, is essentially set up for these women to be uh, constantly objectified. They don't even wear uniforms or costumes, which is partially a legal thing, as we'll talk about yeah. in a minute. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as is, because um, there does seem to be a correlation, perception-wise, between restaurant workers and strippers. And just as I think it's um, really short-sighted to assume that all strippers hate their job and are um, disempowered by that, um, I think the same can be said for women who are working at restaurants as well. Because anecdotally, in reading up on this, there were plenty of young women who said, I really enjoy working at Twin Peaks. It's, you know, I, I have a lot of friends that work there. It's really fun. They don't, they don't feel like they're necessarily compromising anything. Um, but, but there are a lot of standards for working at places, especially more higher end places like, uh, Twin Peaks. Because you have to look apart because you are more performer than just waitress. Yeah. So Twin Peaks employees, it turns out, get discounts at gyms, at nail salons and tanning salons to make sure that they can maintain that look. They also uh, are fed a diet menu at work to help them avoid gaining any weight over and above what they weighed when they were hired. Speaking to the New York Times, for instance, a former Hooters girl named Shayna Costello said, quote, it's a performance. Your hair has to be perfect, just like it would be if you were going on a job interview. And you have to be friendly to the customers for your entire shift. Not every girl can be a Hooters girl. And I would agree with that. I mean, that's it's definitely a <laughs> all of these things, how you look and how you act are very particular parts of the job requirement. And in 2013, Business Insider interviewed an anonymous Hooters waitress. And in her telling of it, working at Hooters was not all that bad. It was helping her pay for college. And she said, yeah, sure, servers get hit on inappropriately sometimes. But that's going to happen regardless of where you're working if you are a waitress. So you might as well do it and make probably better tips at Hooters versus doing that at, say, Chili's. Yeah, one Hooters waitress that they talked to who was working in that Atlantic City um, casino location was saying that she had previously been like a casino cocktail waitress where when you brought someone a drink, they might their tip might be just a thank you. Or not even, you know, so yeah, you might get a high roller who's giving you hundreds of dollars because you're pretty or whatever and you're bringing him a scotch, but you also might make nothing. Whereas she said when she moved over to Hooters from the casino, uh, she suddenly was making consistently high tips from men who, yes, were there to, to look at her and her coworkers, but it wasn't nearly the same, like, I just might not get paid. Well, and that, uh, Hooters, Server, I hate calling them Hooters girls. It just it does seem demeaning. Um, the one who was talking to Business Insider emphasized the family-friendly environment. She was like, "We have babies who come in. We have the baby babies just walk in off the baby, street. Babies love chicken wings with their with their briefcases. Yes, 
little baby fedoras. Um, and how wives are in there. It's not a big deal. But that also goes to what DeWitt was saying in terms of, well, Twin Peaks is working because Hooters is now a family-friendly style restaurant. But there was also a note in those articles, too, about how some Twin Peaks locations were starting to re- request booster seats, mm-hmm. which was surprising to DeWitt of like, oh, okay, so some families also want to come here. But in aggregate, it's not all positive out there if you are working in one of these restaurant environments. Yeah, because sure, yes, that one waitress is correct that you are going to be hit on, asked out, sexually harassed, basically at any restaurant setting. Uh, Sure, that's true. But there is evidence suggesting that it might be worse in restaurants. And this is coming from uh, a business insider study. They, They wanted to look into this whole objectification of Hooters waitresses or restaurants waitresses and find out what kind of psychological toll it took on people. And they found that waitresses working in restaurants that sexually objectified their employees were more likely to experience a host of negative interactions with customers that ranged from unwanted advances to lewd comments. They were also far more likely to internalize cultural standards of beauty, experience symptoms of depression, and were more likely to be be dissatisfied with their job. So basically, the more these women were on display, the more they were compelled to go to the tanning salon, go to the gym, eat the diet menu, the worse they ended up feeling about their job. And that finding controlled for working in non-restaurant restaurants because the first study just kind of looked at the whole you know psychological toll across the board and you know it was like yeah this this isn't so great but this follow-up study confirmed that no it's not just serving it's serving in these kinds of places and and women though put up with this because of these studies found the money And the flexibility. I mean, Mm -hmm. we keep in mind from the last episode that we did on waitressing. These are tipped employees in the United States. That means that they're probably taking home a base pay of only $2.13 an hour. Yeah. So you got to be making those tips, Mm -hmm. you know, if you really want it to kind of pay out for you. And And it seems like anecdotally it does work that way. I couldn't find any good statistics on the average income of a Twin Peaks uh, Twin Peaks Lumber Jill, unfortunately. Though. Maybe we have some listening yeah. who can fill us in. Um, but we're talking way too much about women, Kristen. We need to get into the gendered aspects of the people who want to work at these restaurants, some of whom are men. Yeah, so in the 90s, which seems like was really the heyday of Hooters, things were picking up steam. And side note, it is incredible sitting here in 2015 to look back at the 90s and see how... Uh, Gender dynamics were not as as progressed as they are today. Not so long ago, the 90s. 90s were whack, y'all, in some ways. So in 1995, though, Hooters starts getting pressure from the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, to hire dudes. And the EEOC was like, hey, that's a good point, because these guys would go into Hooters, they'd want to serve, and Hooters would be like, no, dude, you're not a girl. What are you doing here? Get away. Uh, not exactly fair hiring practices. So Hooters responded with a fake march on Washington. They rallied 100 Hooters girls to carry banners that read slogans such as 100 angry women and it's not PMS, which really, again, reflects like how this 
this company is just, you know, so playful and edgy and really respects its female employees. Yeah, one March participant told a reporter that it was this March was really important because she wanted to save her job. Yeah, I mean, and I think that that she might have believed that, but I, at the same time, like how many how many guys really wanted to go in and steal all those Hooters jobs? Well, I mean, this march is also along the same lines of the, as you put it, quote unquote, grassroots advertising and marketing efforts that the original Hooters Six had had done uh, to try to get people to come to their restaurants. And so I think it, it's just more of more of the same that they're just staging a, a fake protest to, to get attention. And in 1997, Hooters finally reached a $3.75 million class action sex discrimination settlement, which was brought by these men around the country who had unsuccessfully tried to get jobs at Hooters. And the Chicago Tribune reported that the plaintiffs said they sought jobs as bartenders, waiters, or servers, not as Hooters girls. And Hooters made this argument that was really actually important in this settlement and laid the groundwork for other places like a Twin Peaks or Tilted Kilt, um, which said that its hiring practice were based on a, quote, bona fide occupational qualification. In other words, being a woman and an attractive woman at that is essential to their I guess, business model. I mean, it's all built on that. It's one of the tools of their trade. Yeah, and so therefore they should be exempt from federal discrimination policies. Um, Hooters did agree, though, to open three gender-neutral positions, staff, host, and bar assistant. Um, but when the Chicago Tribune talked to some customers, not everybody was happy. They were basically like, why you got to be, why you got to be coming in here? Oh, Bob Vasilenko did not handle this news well. This is in 1997. He said, quote, maybe they should open a sister or I guess it would be a brother club called Scooters and let the guys work there and leave this one alone. I mean, Bob was losing. I mean, just pulling his hair out. So <laughs> mad. You go to Scooters. But what would their outfits be? I wonder. Hot pants and crop tops. <laughs> go to Scooters. <laughs> And hopefully, I would like to see a guy in those um, those iridescent <laughs> uh, hosieries. Really emphasizes your calf muscles. Yes, you know, um, you just look all greased up. Um, but yeah, you know, you you hinted at something earlier, Kristen, by by talking about being a Hooters girl or a Twin Peaks waitress or whatever as being a performance. And that being sort of key to this whole legal distinction, that it's more than just saying they're performers. It's literally being like, no, uh, this is how we manage to get away with this. Um, you know, we're not discriminating. Our cast, so to speak, is attractive young women. Yeah. You don't go and interview for a job at Twin Peaks. You audition for it. And yeah. you don't wear a uniform. You wear a costume. And those kinds of terms are very intentional to legally allow these places to mandate girls coming to work with their hair done a certain way, coming to work with full makeup on and wearing these kinds of clothes. Because there have been cases in the past um, for more like cocktail waitress types of jobs where women were required to or, or were punished for not wearing their hair and makeup in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And they brought a lawsuit. So restaurants build that kind of legalese into their business models so that they can 
essentially hire models. Yeah, there was a call for Twin Peaks auditions in Arizona, and they write, of course, our costume requires Twin Peaks girls to be physically fit and well-styled. And one waitress said, you know, it's just like going to a job interview. It's work. You know, you have to look a certain way for a job interview or a, or a play, if we're still speaking about costumes and performances, and you just have to look a certain way to be a, a Twin Peaks waitress. And not surprisingly... There is not a version of Hooters centered around female patrons. Although, okay, the closest thing we have is this place. Listeners, this is true. Is a place that was recently opened called Tallywhackers. And it's like the Chippendales of the, <laughs> of the restaurant industry. Um, and their signature dish, if you can call it a dish, is an extra long hot dog <laughs> with two pickle spears on it. And it, it seems like the most uncomfortable place to go because it's these like college guys in no shirts and I think like um boxer briefs serving you your food. Well like boxer briefs if they were hot pants. So just the hot pants. Yeah. They're also wearing teeny tiny little little shirts and it does sound like it does sound really uncomfortable. There was an article. Was it in business? No, it was in Women's, Women's Health. Women's Health. Yeah, where a, a woman went to this restaurant uh, to scope it out, and she talked to these two like giggly ladies at the bar, and she was like, "So, you know, you're going to be regulars here? You're going to come back?" And they were like, "No, what? Yeah, that's part of like the Hooters or Twin Peaks model that you have these regulars who develop relationships with these waitresses, whereas the lady customers at Tallywhackers are like, "No, this is this is a thing that I do if I want to have like too pricey of a cocktail and ogle some college boys for a minute, but like, no, I'm this is not." <laughs> This is not my lifestyle. It was basically built for bachelorette parties, it sounds like. And and the unofficial, uh, unscientific poll of, of ladies that I took about, regarding tallywhackers was across the board. Uh, no, not wouldn't probably wouldn't go to that. Yeah. Also, I mean, just the, the, the photo of, of that hot dog on the Tallywhackers website. It looks worse than something you would get at the baseball park. It's so unappetizing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah if I want an overpriced hot dog, I'll go to the game. Yeah. Cause at least you can watch, watch a sport activity. I'll go to Twin Peaks so I can watch the <laughs> game on 1400 big screens. And also quick shout out to Inside Amy Schumer, who did an entire sketch on, uh, their version of Tallywhackers, which was O'Nutters. Oh, which is uh, so gross sounding. But so perfect. I mean, it, it takes the entire dynamic of a Hooters and just switches it around. And that's as far as we really need to explain with it. Yeah. But it hits, it really hits the, the old nail on the head, the old chicken wing on the bone. <laughs> um, but I, I am curious to know if there are restaurant workers listening and and what you have to deal with both in terms of on the job but even more so off the job because you know, like hooters waitresses etc are often maligned for this work mm-hmm. but there's that argument of like well are they simply taking advantage of the system mm-hmm. and taking home handsome tips well it's, it's it's nothing has changed nothing has changed since the early 20th century when um, people were linking waitresses of any kind with prostitution and within that 
waitresses who worked at dry establishments were looking down on the more highly tipped or well-tipped and well-paid women who worked at bars or just restaurants that also served alcohol. But I think the troubling thing with this whole system to me is that ultimately, yeah, you might be, some of these women might be paying their way through college, Mm -hmm. but ultimately all of the people interviewed in those industry stories or dudes. I mean, these are men making fat, fat profits really off the bodies of these young women. So that's where it becomes difficult to stomach. Sure. It also boils masculinity down to just beer and boobs. Oh, yeah. It's completely insulting to men. They don't want to be they don't want to think. They just want to watch a million televisions, sit in the recliner and drink beer. God, okay, sometimes that's me too. So I miss dude roommates recliner. I don't know. You can get one too. I wonder. I no. I'm just not. No. No. Too proud. I am too proud. I'm. I'm admitting it. Well, listeners, curious to hear your thoughts on this one. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Uh, well, I have a letter here from Dan in response to our feminist transphobia episode. Uh, Dan says, I just want to thank you for all the good work you do with regards to trans issues. You mentioned how it's complicated trying to navigate the realms of not being transphobic, but also telling the story that is unique to cis women's experience. I wanted to tell you that I think you do a great job of it already. All you need to do is be mindful in your material that your biology does not necessarily correlate to your gender and then follow that philosophy through in your speech. For example, when trying to discuss menstruation, you mentioned how it's important to talk about it because women have historically been separated from their own bodies, and this kind of discussion is important for women to have. This is, of course, true, but referring to the discussion as women's biology implies that all women's biologies are the same, which is simply exclusive of trans people and intersex people. You probably know this already. All that needs to be done is discuss the biology as it is, plainly, with terminology that does not lend itself to a gender unless absolutely necessary. There, of course, instances when the discussion will need to focus on the cisgender experience, and that's fine. Periods are hard to deal with, especially when you're dealing with stigma, both internally and externally. But imagine being a trans man and having to be reminded every month of your quote-unquote woman's biology in possibly the most unpleasant way possible. That's a legitimate struggle that is unique to trans men, and it's worth being inclusive of in a discussion of menstruation. You can stay true to the mission of your podcast by informing women of a topic that they've been misinformed about, but a few adjustments in language lets more people engage in the topic in positive, constructive ways, which is ultimately the goal, isn't it? Also, on the topic of vagina monologues, I go to Florida International University, and last year we actually had a performance of vagina monologues that went on without having to be canceled. We also have active trans advocates on campus. How is this possible, you might ask? The vagina monologues actually included stories about trans people in it and the LGBTQA association, which I'm a part of, was invited to attend. The vagina monologues is important for lots of people to be able to learn from. I actually would kind of like a podcast about it, but just be sure if you're going to discuss women's biology that you're including all women's biology. And if you're going to discuss vaginas, then be mindful of the fact that people other than women have vaginas too. I think you both do a fine job of this already and are setting a shining example for others to conduct themselves. I'm a longtime listener and I've been able to see, well, hear you both grow with regards to this topic and it's really great to see her here. So thank you, Dan. And I've got a letter here from Ash about our interview with Jessica Crispin, author of The Dead Ladies Project. 
Ash writes, I just listened to the Dead Ladies Project episode and I really identified with the author's travel advice. I moved to Turkey with my husband and kids two years ago and let me tell you, it's been an adventure. I'm originally from Dallas, so it was quite a culture shock from day one. Before we left the States, my family was essentially pleading with me not to go, but being the bullheaded person I am, that just made me more determined to make this work. I quit my job, packed up my kids, and off we went. When we first arrived, I was petrified. It was such a sensory overload, all the smells and different sights, not knowing what anyone was trying to say to me. I got home, cried, took a nap, and vowed never to leave the house again. It took me almost a year to become comfortable enough to go to the market by myself, but by the 18-month mark, I found myself completely in love with the culture and the people. They're so welcoming and generally pretty willing to help out my Turklish, which is Turkish slash English, and the food is just insane. Honestly, hot cheesy hummus has changed my whole life. Our time is almost over here, and I find myself sad to leave, which is just so incredibly bizarre. I've learned so much about myself and this country that I never knew I wanted to live in, and it will always have a big chunk of my heart. It hasn't always been fun. Sometimes it was scary, sad, fast, and crazy, but the good parts really make all the negative things just melt away. So if you want to travel or move, do it. Even if it sucks, it will be an experience, and that's what makes life worth it. And sometimes, as I've learned, the experiences you never thought you wanted sometimes turn out to be the best parts of your life. So thanks so much, Ash, and safe travels leaving Turkey and coming, I'm assuming, back to the States. And thanks to everybody who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our mailing address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, including this one with links, so that you can learn more if you want about the restaurant industry, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 